Chapter thirty eight of Lorna Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lorna Doone by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter thirty eight. A good turn for Jeremy. John Fryer had now six shillings a week of regular and permanent wage, besides all harvests and shearing money, as well as a cottage rent free, and enough of garden ground to rear pot herbs for his wife and all his family. Now the wages appointed by our justices at the time of sessions were four and sixpence a week for summer, and a shilling less for the winter time, and we could be fined and perhaps imprisoned for giving more than the sum so fixed. Therefore John Fryer was looked upon as the richest man upon Exmoor, I mean of course among labourers, and there were many jokes about robbing him, as if he were the mint of the king, and Tom Faggus promised to try his hand if he came across John on the highway, although he had ceased from business and was seeking a royal pardon. Now is it according to human nature, or is it a thing contradictory, as I would fain believe? But anyhow, there was upon Exmoor no more discontented man, no man more sure that he had not his worth, neither half so sore about it, than, as or John Fry was. And one thing he did, which I could not wholly, or indeed I may say, in any measure, reconcile with my sense of right, much as I laboured to do John justice, especially because of his roguery, and this was, that if we said too much, or accused him at all of laziness, which he must have known to be in him, he regularly turned round upon us, and quite compelled us to hold our tongues, by threatening to lay information against us for paying him too much wages. Now I have not mentioned all this of John Fryer from any disrespect for his memory, which is green and honest among us, far less from any desire to hurt the feelings of his grandchildren, and I will do them the justice once for all, to avow thus publicly that I have known a great many bigger rogues, and most of themselves in the number, but I have referred with moderation to this little flaw in a worthy character, or foible as we call it when a man is dead, for this reason only, that without it there was no explaining John's dealings with Jeremy Stickles. Master Jeremy, being full of London and Norwich experience, fell into the error of supposing that we clods and yokels were the simplest of the simple, and could be cheated at his good pleasure. Now this is not so. When once we suspect that people have that idea of us, we indulge them in it to the top of their bent, and greed that they should come out of it, as they do at last in amazement, with less money than before, and the laugh now set against them. Ever since I had offended Jeremy, by threatening him, as before related, in the case of his meddling with my affairs, he had more and more allied himself with simple-minded John, as he was pleased to call him. John Fryer was everything. It was, run and fetch my horse, John. John, are my pistols primed well? I want you in the stable, John, about something very particular. Until, except for the rudeness of it, I was longing to tell Master Sickles that he ought to pay John's wages. John, for his part, was not backward, but gave himself the most wonderful airs of secrecy and importance, till half the parish began to think that the affairs of the nation were in his hand, and he scorned the sight of a dung-fork. It was not likely that this should last, and being the only man in the parish with any knowledge of politics, I gave John Fry to understand that he must not presume to talk so freely, as if he were at least a constable, about the Constitution, which could be no affair of his, and might bring us all into trouble. At this he only tossed his nose, as if he had been in London at least three times for my one, which vexed me so that I promised him the thick end of the plough-whip, if even the name of a knight of the shire should pass his lips for a fortnight. Now I did not suspect in my stupid noddle that John Fry would ever tell Jeremy Stickles about the sight at the wizard's slough, and the man in the white nightcap, 
because John had sworn on the blade of his knife not to breathe a word to any soul without my full permission. However, it appears that John related, for a certain consideration, all that he had seen, and doubtless more which had accrued to it. Upon this, Master Stickles was much astonished at Uncle Reuben's proceedings, having always accounted him a most loyal, keen, and wary subject. All this I learned upon recovering Jeremy's good graces, which came to pass in no other way than by the saving of his life. Being bound to keep the strictest watch upon the seven rooks' nests, and yet not bearing to be idle and to waste my mother's stores, I contrived to keep my work entirely at the western corner of our farm, which was nearest to Glen Dune, and whence I could easily run to a height commanding the view I coveted. One day Squire Faggus had dropped in upon us, just in time for dinner, and very soon he and King's messenger were as thick as need be. Tom had brought his beloved mare to show her off to Annie, and he mounted his pretty sweetheart upon her, after giving Winnie notice to be on her very best behaviour. The squire was in great spirits, having just accomplished the purchase of land which was worth ten times what he gave for it, and this he did by a merry trick upon old Sir Roger Bassett, who never supposed him to be in earnest as not possessing the money. The whole thing was done on a bumper of claret in a tavern where they met, and the old knight, having once pledged his word, no lawyers could hold him back from it. They could only say that Master Faggus, being attainted of felony, was not a capable grantee. "'I will soon cure that,' quoth Tom. "'My pardon has been ready for months and months, so soon as I care to sue it.' And now he was telling our Annie, who listened very rosily and believed every word he said, that, having been ruined in early innocence by the means of lawyers, it was only just, and fair turn for turn, that having become a match for them by long practice upon the highway, he should reinstate himself at their expense in society. And now he would go to London at once, and sue out his pardon, and then would his lovely darling Annie, etc., etc., things which I had no right to hear, and in which I was not wanted. Therefore I strode away up the lane to my afternoon's employment, sadly comparing my love with theirs, which now appeared so prosperous, yet heartily glad for Annie's sake, only remembering now and then the old proverb, wrong never comes right. I worked very hard in the copse of young ash, with my bill-hook and a shearing-knife, cutting out the saplings where they stooled too close together, making spars to keep for thatching, wall-crooks to drive into the cob, styles for close sheep-hurdles, and handles for rakes and hoes and two-bills of the larger and straighter stuff. And all the lesser I bound into faggots to come home on the sled to the woodrick. It is not to be supposed that I did all this work without many peeps at the seven rooks' nests, which proved my Lorna's safety. Indeed, whenever I wanted to change either from cleaving, or hewing too hard, or stooping too much at binding, I was up and away to the ridge of the hill, instead of standing and doing nothing. Soon I forgot about Tom and Annie, and fell to thinking of Lorna only, and how much I would make of her, and what I should call our children, and how I would educate them, to do honour to her rank. Yet all the time I worked none the worse by reason of meditation. Fresh-cut spars are not so good as those of a little seasoning, especially if the sap was not gone down at the time of cutting. Therefore we always find it needful to have plenty still in stock. It was very pleasant there in the copse, sloping to the west as it was, and the sun descending brightly, with rocks and banks to dwell upon. The stems of mottled and dimpled wood, with twigs coming out like elbows, hung and clung together closely, with a mode of bending in as children do at some danger. Overhead the shrunken leaves quibbled and rustled ripely, having many points like stars, and rising and falling delicately, as fingers play sad music. Along the bed of the slanting ground, or between the stools of wood, there were heaps of dead brown leaves, and sheltered mats of lichen, and drifts of spotted stick gone rotten, 
and tufts of rushes here and there full of fray and feathering all by the hedge ran a little stream a thing that could barely name itself flowing scarce more than a pint in a minute because of the sunny weather yet had this reel little crooks and crannies dark and bravely bearded and a gallant rush through a reed and pipe the stem of a flag that was grounded and here and there divided threads from the point of a branching stick into mighty pool of rock as large as a grown man's hat almost napped with moss all around the sides and hung with corded grasses along and down the tiny banks and nodding into one another even across main channel hung the brown arcade of ferns some with gold tongues languishing some with countless ear-drops jerking some with great quilled ribs uprising and long sores a-flapping others cupped and fanning over with the grace of yielding even as a hollow fountain spread by winds that have lost their way deeply each beyond other pluming stooping glancing glistening weaving softest pillow-lace coying to the wind and water where their fleeting image danced or by which their beauty moved god has made no lovelier thing and only he takes heed of them it was time to go home to supper now and i felt very friendly towards it having been hard at work for some hours with only the voice of the little rill and some hares and a pheasant for company the sun was gone down behind the black wood on the further cliffs of bagworthy and the russet of the tufts and spear-beds was becoming grey while the greyness of the sapling ash grew brown against the sky the hollow curves of the little stream became black beneath the grasses and the fairy fans innumerable while outside the hedge our clover was crimping its leaves in the dewfall like the cocked hats of wood sorrel when thanking god for all this scene because my love had gifted me with the key to all things lovely i prepared to follow their example and to rest from labour therefore i wiped my bill-hook and shearing knife very carefully for I hate to leave tools dirty, and was doubting whether I should try for another glance at the seven rooks' nests, or whether it would be too dark for it. It was now a quarter of an hour, mayhap, since I had made any chopping noise, because I had been assorting my spars and tying them in bundles, instead of plying the bill-hook, and the gentle tinkle of the stream was louder than my doings. To this, no doubt, I owe my life, which then, without my dreaming it, was in no little jeopardy for just as i was twisting the vine of my very last faggot before tucking the cleft tongue under there came three men outside the hedge where the western light was yellow and by it i could see that all three of them carried firearms these men were not walking carelessly but following down the hedge trough as if to stalk some enemy and for a moment it struck me cold to think it was i they were looking for with the swiftness of terror i concluded that my visits to glen doone were known and now my life was the forfeit it was a most lucky thing for me that i heard their clothes catch in the brambles and saw their hats under the rampart of ash which is made by what we call splashing and lucky for me that i stood in a goyal and had the dark coppice behind me to this i had no time to fly but with a sort of instinct threw myself flat in among the thick fern and held my breath and lay still as a log for I had seen the light gleam on their gun-barrels, and knowing the faults of the neighbourhood would fain avoid swelling their number. Then the three men came to the gap in the hedge where I had been in and out so often, and stood up and looked in over. It is all very well for a man to boast that in all his life he has never been frightened, and believes that he never could be so. There may be men of that nature, I will not dare to deny it, only I have never known them. The fright I was now in was horrible, and all my bones seemed to creep inside me, when lying there helpless, with only a billet and the comb of fern to hide me in the dusk of early evening, I saw three faces in the gap, and what was worse, three gun-muzzles. 
"'Somebody been at work here.' It was the deep voice of Carver Doone. "'Jump up, Charlie, and look about. We must have no witnesses.' "'Give me a hand behind,' said Charlie, the same handsome young Doone I had seen that night. "'This bank is too devilish steep for me.' "'Nonsense, man!' cried Marwood de Wickerhauser, who, to my amazement, was the third of the number. "'Only a hind-cutting faggots, and of course he hath gone home long ago. Blind man's holiday, as we call it. I can see all over the place, and there is not even a rabbit there.' At that I drew my breath again, and thank God I had gotten my coat on. "'Squire is right,' said Charlie, who was standing up high on a root, perhaps. "'There is nobody there now, Captain, and lucky for the poor devil that he keepeth workman's hours. Even his chopper is gone, I see.' "'No dog, no man, is the rule about here when it comes to coppice work,' continued young de Vickerhauser. "'There is not a man would dare work there without a dog to scare the pixies.' "'There is a big young fellow upon this farm,' Carver Doone muttered sulkily, "'with whom I have an account to settle if ever I come across him. "'He hath a cursed spite to us, because we shot his father. "'He was going to bring the lumpers upon us, only he was afeard last winter. "'And he hath been in London lately for some traitorous job, I doubt.' "'Oh, you mean that fool, John Ridd,' answered the young squire. "'A very simple clodhopper. "'No treachery in him, I warrant. "'He hath not the head for it. "'All he cares about is wrestling. "'As strong as a bull, and with no more brains.' "'A bullet for that bull,' said Carver, "'and I could see the grin on his scornful face. "'A bullet for ballast to his brain, "'the first time I came across him. "'Nonsense, Captain. "'I won't have him shot, for he is my old schoolfellow, "'and hath a very pretty sister.' but his cousin is of a different mould and ten times as dangerous. "'We shall see, lads, we shall see,' grumbled the great black-bearded man. "'Ill bodes for the fool that would hinder me. But come, let us onward. No lingering, or the viper will be in the bush from us. Body and soul, if he give us the slip, both of you shall answer it.' "'No fear, Captain, and no hurry,' Charlie answered gallantly. "'Would I were as sure of living a twelve months as he is of dying within the hour?' extreme unction for him in my bullet patch remember i claim to be his confessor because he hath insulted me thou art welcome to the job for me said marwood as they turned away and kept along the hedgerow i love to meet a man sword to sword not to pop at him from a foxhole what answer was made i could not hear for by this time the stout ashen hedge was between us and no other gap to be found in it until at the very bottom where the corner of the copse was Yet was I not quit of danger now, for they might come through that second gap, and then would be sure to see me unless I crept into the uncut thicket before they could enter the clearing. But in spite of all my fear, I was not wise enough to do that, and in truth the words of Carver Doone had filled me with such anger, knowing what I did about him, and his pretense to Lorna, and the sight of Squire Marwood in such outrageous company had so moved my curiosity, and their threats against some unknown person so aroused my pity, that much of my prudence was forgotten, or at least the better part of courage, which loves danger at long distance. Therefore, holding fast my bill-hook, I dropped myself very quietly into the bed of the runnel, being resolved to take my chance of their entrance at the corner, where the water dived through the hedgerow. And so I followed them down the fence, as gently as a rabbit goes. Only I was inside it, and they on the outside, but yet so near that I heard the branches rustle as they pushed them. Perhaps I had never loved ferns so much as when I came to the end of that little gully, and stooped betwixt two patches of them, now my chiefest shelter, for cattle had been through the gap just there in quest of fodder and coolness, and had left but a mound of trodden earth between me and the outlaws. 
I mean at least in my left hand, upon which side they were, for in front where the brook went out of the copse was a good stiff hedge of holly. And now I prayed heaven to lead them straight on, for if they once turned to their right through the gap, the muzzles of their guns would come almost against my forehead. I heard them, for I durst not look, and could scarce keep still for trembling. I heard them trampling outside the gap, uncertain which track they should follow. And in that fearful moment, with my soul almost looking out of my body, expecting notice to quit it, what do you think I did? I counted the threads in a spider's web, and the flies he had lately eaten as their skeletons shook in the twilight. "'We shall see him better in there,' said Carver, in his horrible gruff voice, like the creaking of the gallows chain. "'Sit there, behind Hollyhedge, lads, while he cometh down yonder hill. "'And then our good evening to him, one at his body and two at his head. "'And good aim, lest we balk the devil.' "'I tell you, Captain, that will not do,' said Charlie, almost whispering. "'You are very proud of your skill, we know, and can hit a lark if you see it. "'But he may not come until after dark, and we cannot be too nigh to him. "'This Hollyhedge is too far away. "'He crosses down here from Slocumslade, not from Tubercot, I tell you.' but along that track to the left there, and so by the foreland to Glenthorne, where his boat is in the cove. Do you think I have tracked him so many evenings without knowing his line to a hair? Will you fall away all my trouble? Come then, lad, we will follow thy lead. Thy life for his, if we fail of it. After me, then, right into the hollow. Thy legs are growing stiff, Captain. So shall thy body be, young man, if thou leadest me astray in this. I heard them stumbling down the hill, which was steep and rocky in that part, and peering through the hedge I saw them enter a covert by the side of the track which Master Stickles followed almost every evening when he left our house upon business. And then I knew who it was they were come on purpose to murder, a thing which I might have guessed long before but for terror and cold stupidity. Oh, that God, I thought for a moment, waiting for my blood to flow, oh, that God had given me brains to meet such cruel dastards according to their villainy, the power to lie and the love of it, the stealth to spy and the glory in it, above all the quiet relish for blood and joy in death of an enemy. These are what any man must have to contend with the dunes upon even terms. And yet I thank God that I have not any of these. It was no time to dwell upon that, only to try, if might be, to prevent the crime they were bound upon. To follow the armed men down the hill would have been certain death to me, because there was no covert there, and the last light hung upon it. It seemed to me that my only chance to stop the mischief pending was to compass the round of the hill as fast as feet could be laid to ground, only keeping out of sight from the valley, and then down the rocks and across the brook, to the track from Slade, so as to stop the king's messenger from travelling any further, if only I could catch him there. And this was exactly what I did and a terrible run I had for it, fearing at every step to hear the echo of shots in the valley, and dropping down the scrubby rocks with tearing and violent scratching. Then I crossed Bagworthy stream, not far below Dune Valley, and breasted the hill towards Slade, with my heart very heavily panting. Why Jeremy chose to ride this way instead of the more direct one, which would have been over Orar Hill, was more than I could account for, but I had nothing to do with that, all I wanted was to save his life. And this I did by about a minute, and, which was the hardest thing of all, with a great horse-pistol at my head as I seized upon his bridle. "'Jeremy! Jerry!' was all I could say, being so fearfully short of breath, for I had crossed the ground quicker than any horse could. "'Spoken just in time, John Ridd,' cried Master Stickles, still, however, pointing the pistol at me. 
I might have known thee by thy size, John. What art doing here? Come to save your life. For God's sake, go no further. Three men in the covert there with long guns waiting for thee. Ha! I have been watched of late. That is why I pointed at thee, John. Back round this corner and get thy breath and tell me all about it. I never saw a man so hurried. I could beat thee now, John. Jeremy Stickles was a man of courage and presence of mind, and much resource, otherwise he would not have been appointed for this business. Nevertheless, he trembled greatly when he heard what I had to tell him. But I took good care to keep back the name of young Marwa de Rickerhauser. Neither did I show my knowledge of the other men, for reasons of my own not very hard to conjecture. "'We will let them cool their heels, John Ridd,' said Jeremy, after thinking a little. "'I cannot fetch my musketeers either from Glenthorne or Lynmouth in time to seize the fellows. "'And three desperate dunes, well armed, are too many for you and me. "'One result this attempt will have, and it will make us attack them sooner than we had intended. "'And one more it will have, good John. It will make me thy friend for ever. "'Shake hands, my lad, and forgive me freely for having been so cold to thee.' Mayhap, in the troubles coming, it will help thee not a little to have done me this good turn. Upon that he shook me by the hand, with a pressure such as we feel not often, and having learned from me how to pass quite beyond view of his enemies, he rode on to his duty, whatever it might be. For my part, I was inclined to stay, and watch how long the three fusiliers would have the patience to lie in wait, but seeing less and less use in that, as I grew more and more hungry, I swung my coat about me and went home to Plover's Barrows. End of chapter thirty eight. Read by Landy in Sydney, Australia, October two thousand and eight.